you're asking me my my for my expertise on comedy and I don't have any Welcome to today's episode of the Comical Heathen. Uh, this is my podcast, and I am its host. I am Dr. Jerry Jaffe, the world's most highly educated stand-up comedian. Uh, this podcast is part of my work on religious satire, uh, so welcome to it. Welcome to it. Project here, if I can put it that way, is that I am well, working on a book on religious satire after September 11th. And as part of this book, I've started doing interviews with interesting persons. And then I record some of the interviews and share them on this podcast. You know, past episodes have included people like uh, Kevin Downey Jr., A.J. Jacobs. So that's like what we're doing. How about today? Today's episode features my interview with well-known science blogger P.Z. Myers. P.Z. is a biology professor at the University of Minnesota. He's a well-known science blogger. He's the author of the book The Happy Atheist. This episode features a conversation he and I had on Skype a couple of weeks ago. So I'm excited to share it with you. You know, in my conversation with PZ, we get into a few things such as science and education, the, you know, the role of humor in the atheism debate. PZ shares his take on some people like Bill Maher, Tim Minchin, Sam Harris, and Richard Dawkins, and also his opinion about so-called new atheism and what's that all about, including his own book, The Happy Atheist. Before we get into all that, those who've listened to the podcast before know that me and my wife keep two pet rabbits. A little Holland Lops. We have uh, Newton and Kelvin. And I always like to share little updates. Call it updates from the rabbit hutch. Actually, we don't uh, use hutches. Uh, we have a kind of indoor pen. It has some cages, but it's like free-range cages. They're not usually kept in their cages. It has some litter boxes, has some toys, has hay and water and all the things that rabbits need. And uh, they hop about. Uh, Kelvin and Newton are doing well. I haven't posted any new pictures of them lately, so I might put some up with this episode, too, just to uh, show people how our rabbits are doing. Kelvin and Newton are both boy rabbits, and uh, rabbits are known for bonding, so they spend a lot of time together. Uh, they groom each other. Sometimes rabbit enthusiasts call when two male rabbits live together and they're bonded husbands, so they are cute little husbands. I will say rabbits have their own interesting psychology. They're not like other pets. And one of the things with our rabbits, which is common, is that they spend a lot of time together. You know, they're grooming, they're touching, they're laying next to each other. Like any married couple, I suppose, they also spend time apart. Sometimes they're on opposite ends of the pen. Uh, sometimes they do a little thumping with their you know, foot. Leave me alone. I need my personal space. So it's just interesting to watch them, you know, uh, negotiate their little rabbity relationship. Uh, one of the side effects of keeping rabbits as a pet is that uh, we line those cages with newspapers. And because of lining the cages with newspapers, it has actually weirdly caused me to start reading newspaper headlines again, because I see them, you know, while we're putting them down and cleaning them up and so on. You know, who would have thunk it? Having a couple pet rabbits has led to me reading the newspaper again. There's a 19th century hobby for you. Sometimes I notice headlines that are on a religious topic or theme, and these often get my attention. And uh, when I see one of these headlines, I just have to rant about it sometimes. And I saw such a headline you might have seen it, too. It sort of did its rounds on social media over the past couple of months. Pretty hilarious situation. The Creation Museum in Cincinnati, as you may know, has built a giant replica Noah's Ark. First of all, let me just say, great job, biblical literalists, building a fake boat 
that can literally in no way float in a misguided effort to prove their Bible is literally true. I don't think they understand how literally works. And I might add that despite endless prattling on about cubits this and spans that, the Old Testament doesn't actually tell us very much about what this ark was supposed to look like. So how can they be so damn sure they've made a replica of it? Reminds me of a sign I saw at a truck stop in Indiana once saying they had a life-size replica of Bigfoot. I'll let that sink in for a second. Life-sized. Life-sized! How the fuck can you have a life-size replica of a thing that doesn't exist in real life? That would be like having a life-size replica of a Roswell alien, or the Starship Enterprise, or the Loch Ness Monster, or Donald Trump's empathy. You can't have replicas of things that don't actually exist. I know, Trump slam, that's low-hanging fruit. But at his age, his fruit are low-hanging. As if to emphasize the ridiculousness of this replica ark, God has sent a mighty rain to smite the graven image. No, seriously, heavy rains have caused over $1 million worth of damage to the park. Oh, that's irony of biblical proportions. Apparently, Merriam-Webster sent an editor over because they needed a new illustration to put next to the word irony. Take that, Alanis Morissette. I suppose the people who run this Ark Park had never heard of an act of God. And now the Ark Park people are suing their insurance company to cover the damages that their God did. And that doesn't seem very biblical to me. I mean, my religious friends are always the ones saying God works in mysterious ways. Well, maybe it's all part of his mysterious plan to destroy this monstrosity. Now, if you've never been to the Creation Museum, allow me to paint a picture. I've done field work there for my book, and it is hilarious. Of course, they have dinosaurs on the ark. They have a display about the evil, evil weeds growing in your yard. They have raptors playing with children instead of Jurassic parking their asses. They have displays, and I am not making this up, suggesting that medieval dragon myths are proof of men living at the same time as dinosaurs. It's a sad day when a History Channel episode of Ancient Aliens is more scientifically accurate than a goddamn museum. I mean, this is such anti-science bullshit, it makes you think that the reason they're called creationists is because of their amazing ability to just make shit up. And not only is it anti-science, it's also anti-biblical literalism. Since there is literally nothing about dinosaurs, or dragons, or Jurassic Park, Game of Thrones, or the Flintstones in the Bible, yabba dabba don't! Now, all of this badly created creationism BS would be hilarious if taxpayers weren't funding it being taught to school children. And I am not joking right now. Right now, in Florida, taxpayers spend over $1 billion on religiously affiliated charter schools, some of which teach a creationism-based curriculum. That's a billion with a B, which strikes me as a lot of money to teach children that Noah's Ark has dinosaurs on it. Hell, with a billion dollars, I could almost pay off my student loans. Almost. I know, I know, it's a shock, right? Problems in Florida. Land of alligators, serial killers, and alligators who are serial killers. 
throwing a billion dollars of Florida's public money at private religious schools does not sound very wise to me. But I suppose as long as they don't start teaching crazy shit, it won't be so bad. Let's see, I'm looking at an article about this right now. What's it say? Oh, some of the schools are teaching that the Loch Ness Monster is real. Well, that didn't take long. One book that some of the schools use says, Some scientists speculate that Noah took small or baby dinosaurs on the ark. Some, 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 who, who are these scientists? Did you name one of these scientists? Ask that their names not be used? Are they some kind of trouble? You know, are they in the country illegally? I mean, who? Some? Sure. I guess zero is a number. Zero could be some. The sum is zero. Dinosaurs on the ark? Hey, what's that old joke? On the first day, the two lions ate the two zebras, and the two anteaters ate the two ants, and the two raptors ate all the people. So what did they all eat on the second day? Listen, people, you cannot just take dinosaurs on an ark. I know. I already saw that movie. I think it was Jurassic Park 5, The Raptoring. Oh, it's a sad, sad, sad day when a History Channel episode of Ancient Aliens is more scientifically accurate than a goddamn textbook. You know when the last time you saw somebody bend over backwards like this to make the facts match their worldview? You know when it was? It was right before your friend broke up with the woman that is now his ex, when he was so terribly desperate to make sense of all the contradictory signs. He was like, oh, yeah, she said she's making good friends at work. Uh, she couldn't come to my, my aunt's funeral. She had uh, to work overtime that day. And uh, uh, lately, she doesn't want to have sex much, you know, but, uh, but I think she's just real tired from work, you know? And two days later, she's gone. And then, he, then he's wondering how he missed the signs when they were giant neon billboards. That's the kind of twisted thinking it takes when you're teaching children that the Loch Ness Monster and baby dinosaurs on the ark, all because you're afraid you might go to hell. It must be hard to be a kid in one of these schools. I hear they have some really strict policies. Any student who shows up wearing mixed fibers gets an automatic F and stoned to death. Hey, that's in Deuteronomy. All the best stonings are in Deuteronomy. Evolution isn't the only thing denied in some of these schools. History classes are all rewritten to make the Christians the heroes. Now, the way these classes tell it, slavery was good for the slaves because it turned all the slaves into Christians. I mean, it seems to me that a loving God could have just made all the people in Africa Christians, you know, without all the kidnapping, slavery, indentured servitude and whatnot. But what do I know? I like Star Trek V. Tweet at me. Come on. Uh, furthermore, God gave North America to the Protestants. So I guess the native people already here were just keeping the seat warm. They were just growing maize and tobacco and stuff, so they'd have welcoming gifts for when the pilgrims arrived. Hey, I'll hurry, you guys. I can see them coming. They're nearly here. Oh, and look, they've brought us some nice warm blankets. One more example of how disturbing all this is. Another bit of wisdom from one of these textbooks tells the children that God does indeed sometimes use illness to punish sinners. I mean, I hope they clarify that that's usually only lower class sinners who can't afford a health care, though. 
I mean, rich sinners who commit white-collar crimes are kept disease-free. I wonder, how can they tell which children with cancer are being punished for their impure thoughts and which are the ones who just, you know, got sick? If there is a God, and if this God does use illness to punish sinners, I hate to think how he's going to punish these dickheads for telling sick children that their sniffles is just their loving God punishing them. Probably a rash. But I mean like a, a really bad rash in the shape of Florida. Ironically, right on their junk. And they have to live in Florida. And that's what I found at the bottom of the rabbit hutch today. I consider misinformation a sin, so I have to correct the record every chance I get. Sorry for raining on your parade, but hey, it may be your dogma, but it's my karma. Now, let's get to my interview with P.Z. Myers. Uh, you know him from his science blog. He's a college professor uh, teaching biology, author of The Happy Atheist. So coming up next, my interview with P.Z. Myers. Uh, welcome to today's episode of The Comical Heathen. This is your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, and I am very pleased to introduce our guest today, the biology professor, blogger, and author, and someone I've been a fan of for many years since I discovered his blog. Please welcome P.Z. Myers. Hello there. Hello, P.Z. Yes, oh, I really appreciate you. Let's uh, make sure listeners know a little bit about you. I know you're a biology professor up in Minnesota. Uh, what kind of classes do you teach or what kind of research do you do? Okay, I'm at the University of Minnesota Morris, which is the small liberal arts branch <laughs> of the University of Minnesota. And I, I teach primarily the little things like cell biology and genetics and developmental biology. So uh, that's actually just, that's actually a real division they make here. Little biology versus big biology. So I'm the little biologist around here. <laughs> I first became aware of P.Z. Myers just stumbling upon your blog, which uh, has been rated uh, at one point the, was it, the most read science blog? Or I can't remember how it was phrased, but there was some accolade associated with how popular your blog yeah. is. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure it's not at that status anymore, but <laughs> that's that's okay. Your now I of course can pronounce the name of your blog. However, for people listening, well, um, why don't you tell us how to pronounce the name of your blog? Ah, uh, yeah, I was brilliant picking this name, wasn't <laughs> I? Uh, it's Feringula. Feringula, and um, Feringula. <laughs> is, it, is it a ring in the middle, pharyngula? There's, there's kind of a ring in there, yeah. <laughs> uh, a term from biology, uh, what does it mean and why did you pick it originally? Well, I'm a developmental biologist primarily, and I was working on zebrafish. Okay. And the, the pharyngula stage is a stage in development when they're first forming their organs and they've got pharyngeal arches. It's beginning to look like a little baby fish. Okay. And it's, it's kind of a critical period in their development. So because that was the stage I was most interested in, I said, oh, okay, I'll just, I'll just stick this on my blog. It's not like, it's not like anybody's going to ever read it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a word that your, your casual reader um, cannot, can neither pronounce nor spell. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> my impression, uh, to a certain degree, was that it, it was uh, maybe the rise of social media in the early 2000s. It was uh, well positioned to be something for people to discover. Right. Yeah. It was. It was one of the earlier science blogs. Not. Not the earliest. Right. But of course, even from the very beginning, I was not restricting myself to just science topics. It was more of a P.Z. Meyer's slice of life blog. Right. With with added science. <laughs> I know. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of photos of 
spiders. Yes, I have. I have gone through a midlife crisis, <laughs> and you know, like everyone, once you go through your midlife crisis, you got to change things, and you change to spiders, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> The zebrafish are gone, and I have instead installed a whole bunch of cages for um, these little house spiders. And I'm going out on regular walks collecting spiders in the neighborhood. Perfectly normal behavior. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hear anything otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you won't hear anything otherwise here, I promise you. <laughs> okay. As I am uh, a person who was uh, quite afraid of spiders as a child, but I've uh, like reconditioned myself to love them. You know, what? Yeah. what changed for me was having children because I didn't want to pass on my, you know, I don't know, native fear of spiders to my children. So when uh -huh. a spider would appear around my children, I would show it to them, like gently, like, oh, look at this. It's so interesting. Yeah. It's so pretty. It's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, I, I really don't believe that there is such a thing as a, an inherited form of arachnophobia. I, you know, I've been talking to lots of people and, you know, they, they fall into a couple of categories. One is they discover you are now posting photos of spiders <laughs> on your blog and they vow to never, ever read it ever again. And there's been a few of those. Uh, but then others, you catch their attention, you make them look and they say, hey, you know, those are really interesting mm. animals. And you get them hooked on spiders. So, so that, that's that's my goal is to <laughs> addict everyone in the country to spider hunting. My um, children are all college graduates now, so they're not little anymore. I do want to say my one daughter just started graduate school this year at the University of Toledo uh, in biology. And I often share links to uh, from your blog with her, like uh, <laughs> various topics. Uh, I, can, I, I can't uh, say how interested she is, but, but I, yeah. I will say uh, as an undergraduate, she worked in her... She went to Baldwin-Wallace as a biology major, and she had a job in the labs, you know, taking care of animals and things of that nature. And there's a great photo of her holding a tarantula. Uh -huh. And I just thought, like, that's the first Jaffe in the history of Jaffe's or spiders <laughs> to, to a hold one. <laughs> oh, very good. No, that's that's how you get them started. You know, that this is something I would recommend to anybody out there who's interested in a career in biology is... The place to start is you just get in there and you do it. You're <laughs> undergraduate. Yeah, go go volunteer to work in animal care in a lab or something. Yep. If you're not in college yet, just get out for long walks and look closely and figure mm -hmm. out what's in the world around you. And pretty soon you're, th you're thinking like a biologist. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the um, topics which frequently appears on your blog and which partially motivates me wanting to talk with you a bit is, um, sorry for pausing, there are so many words we could choose. I mean, we might broadly say, atheism or skepticism, uh -huh. pro-science or anti-anti-science, and creationism makes frequent appearances, <laughs> intelligent design. What do you um, think of the, the state of, you know, uh, science versus those who are skeptical of science or maybe prefer uh, deniers of science? Yeah, that, uh, man, that's, you start with a really complicated question. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's because, why I started with what's your major. Now I've, yes. I've moved on to the co complicated questions. And then there's there's a leap off of a precipice down in the, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, it really is complicated because, you know, I started off as a gung-ho promoter of atheism. Mm -hmm. And largely it was because of my science perspective is that so much of religion is anti-science. Mm -hmm. So I started off with that perspective is we got we to get rid of this these nonsensical beliefs that are 
corrupting the country, corrupting education, mm -hmm. making a mess of everything. And the way to do that is to get people to give up on this nonsense of religion. Of course, what happened is that I also came into this with with a scientific perspective, but also a very progressive liberal perspective. And I thought, once we get rid of religion, we'll also get rid of those horrible conservative attitudes, you know, mm -hmm. things, things like sex and marriage and, and how people should behave and we'll be a better, better world for it. Right. And what I've discovered since is that there are a great many atheists who want to disbelieve in God, but also want to maintain those old conservative beliefs. Right. And also, what I've also been finding is that there are many atheists who profess a belief in science, okay. but do not practice it. Okay. Yeah, there's there's so much motivated reasoning going on that people are not willing to... You know, and this is a human failure. It's, sure. It's not just an atheist failure. It's a human failure. Uh, they're just not able to think beyond their previous conceptions or indoctrination. I, so I teach a critical thinking class here at uh, Lake Erie College, and I almost always start on the very first day talking about confirmation bias because uh -huh. it's, it's very important, but it's also an easy fallacy to explain on the first day. Like <laughs> within an hour, everybody in the room understands what confirmation bias is, and then you can... Right, yeah, and it's, it's particularly hard when you're in a privileged position like I am you know here I'm 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 comfortable too I, this is a <laughs> this is a great place to live I'm making a reasonable wage I might got job security and now you're telling me that there's something wrong with my world what <laughs> you're you're asking me to risk this great stuff I've got because people are being shot by the police and other people are being starved and other people are mm -hmm. being thrown into cages well well, I'm not getting shot and thrown into cages. Right. You must be wrong. <laughs> so I, I, one of the things I noticed about your book, there's, you know, there's some nice uh, jacket blurbs on the back, and one of the jacket blurbs, you know, says something. You know, of course, it's kind, kind to you about setting yourself apart from new other new atheist authors. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't remember the phrase "new atheist" appearing inside your book. <laughs> so I wonder how you feel about the phrase "new atheist." Well, you know, for a long time i was pretty open about professing to be part of that click right, right. That, so i maybe not in the book but in my blog i have talked yes. about being a new atheist and now it's distinctly uncomfortable because the new atheists have they have drifted into this sort of fringe obscurity okay that yeah i mean even people you know people as famous as richard dawkins and sam harris mm -hmm. They have embraced some rather unpleasant ideas. Okay. And they've made those identical with the whole thesis of the new so-called new atheism. Right. So you you know it's it's like calling yourself a new atheist means, oh you're you're a misogynist who hates immigrants and no that's not me. <laughs> I don't want... <laughs> so I've I've been fleeing from the mm -hmm. label. And, and the atheist movement itself has gotten so, you know, generally has gotten so ugly in many ways that I sometimes get uncomfortable calling myself an atheist, but I still do just because I have to be honest that I reject those God beliefs. Right. The original so-called four horsemen, including Dawkins and Harris, Hitchens and Dennett, I, I don't think any of them ever used the phrase new atheist. It was an expression sort of foisted upon their opus or their ideas by other commentators. Correct. That, you know, Dawkins on, on several occasions said he didn't see what was new about it. 
<laughs> and that was kind of the general feeling among all of us. On the other hand, Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and Dennett did try to set themselves apart as the so-called four horsemen. Yes. Well, there's that yeah. sort of famous video called The Four Horsemen, which does, I mean, it must have done wonders for branding. <laughs> yeah, they, they did build a really strong brand. There's a lot of PR there, but it was it, it's ultimately kind of meaningless. Mm -hmm. And, and in, in many ways, it's also been kind of dangerous for the movement because I've seen so many people who profess an almost religious worship of the Four Horsemen. Right. Yes. How dare you criticize Sam Harris? <laughs> <laughs> Sam Harris is one of the easiest to criticize. So. <laughs> you know, I'm generically a fan of, of all four and have read all their major works. Sam Harris's Letter to a Christian Nation is probably the one book I would give to somebody if they were like curious. Although I say that, and this is also going to be you know, unnecessarily um, um, accommodating of me, I, I would probably replace that with The Happy Atheist. I, I think the happy atheist like hits all the major notes that you would want if you're trying to introduce know, like contemporary atheism, but it's largely you know friendly and readable and personal yeah. as well. So it is certainly a, a good you know a good Christmas present. <laughs> yeah, except it doesn't take itself as seriously as Sam Harris does. Correct. Yes. Yeah, that that's a problem. So I, I don't think it would ever be as influential. I don't think it could be. Uh, right. it, it lacks that that certitude that Sam Harris always throws at things. But that's okay. That's, yes. That's not, that's not a position I would ever want to be in. In the your blog and in the book and as a biology professor as well, I wanted to, to ask about this. In the book I'm supposedly trying to write about religious satire, there's going to be, it's mostly written at this point, as part of the book, a chapter on comedians who specifically lampoon creationism, mm. of which there have been many over the years. But you, you know, are often ta tackling this topic. So I, and I, you have been to the Creation Museum. I have also been to the Creation Museum. I wrote an article about it a few years ago. So I just wonder, um, what is so noisome or offensive about creationism? Oh, well, it's it's because it, it's so flat-out contradictory and wrong, mm -hmm. yet people believe it, that they just, they just embrace it so right. wholeheartedly. And, um, you know, if, if you know anything about science behind it, you're just sitting there thinking, this is, this is nuts. That, <laughs> There, this, these, these are cultists who have embraced this weird <laughs> idea, yes. and you know it's it's also because I, I have a really strong interest in history, and I've read a number of books on the history of this. Okay, the form of creationism we have now was not present a hundred years ago. Really, it was not. Oh, really? It was. In fact, if you go back to the you know the early 1900s and you read things like the fundamentals and all the stuff that founded evangelical Christianity and fundamentalist Christianity, uh, what you find is a willingness to accept the scientific discoveries. That what they were struggling to do is reconcile this whole idea that the Earth is billions of years old with what the Bible says, and they they had all these different models right. for how. It, could be, which, you know, was reaching as far as I was concerned. But okay, they, they really were interested in having a belief that did not conflict with the scientific evidence. Right. And then hmm. along comes Morris in 1961, publishing The Creation Flood, and it's completely different because what he has done, uh, they, they simply 
abandon all effort to reconcile okay. science and religion and instead embrace the fact that science was all wrong and religion was correct. Okay. And that's all you need to know. That and it was a very was a very reassuring message to many people because it was saying you don't need to learn that hard stuff about science. Just stick to your Bible. Right. Believe it literally and you're all good. So it, it was a it was a kind of a radical transformation in their approach to science and uh yeah and it's just gotten worse and worse. Um, Answers in Genesis is the worst, but yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. If you are in a casual uh, social encounter, what I sometimes refer to as coffee shop conversations, with a acquaintances, and someone in the group brings up creationism or, you know, that they're an evolution skeptic of some stripe, but is there a specific, like, a go-to either point or example that you would give to someone who was um, a skeptic yeah. of evolution? Well, my strategy in those cases is not to go for a broad brush dismissal of all of creationism. Right. Because, you know, then you've just you've just removed yourself from the conversation. You said there's this vast gulf between us, never mind. <laughs> but instead what I'll do is I'll wait for them to bring up something specific. And I've got enough background in the science and the creationism that usually what ends up happening is I sit there and quietly dismantle their claim. Right. You know, just tear that one apart. And in a sort of non-judgmental way, you say, well, no, that's wrong because we know X, Y, and Z. Here's right. the evidence that says this is right. this is wrong. And you just do that. Sometimes what that means is the other person will simply drop the whole topic because they know <laughs> they're in big trouble if they continue. <laughs> uh, but there have been a few occasions uh, where I get trapped into conversation with this tactic because I've, I've actually spent three hours at a session just dismantling some guy's claims one after the other. Right. So it can get exhausting. And the thing is that at the end of it, he still believes. Right. So how much time of how much of your time do you need to invest to that specific yeah, encounter? I've, I've always considered it this is like going for your daily run or something. Right. It's a little exercise, <laughs> keep yourself in shape. Yep. So I, I accept that. Changing minds is hard. Right. And it's can only be done incrementally. Right. And what you hope for is that at some point they have a little revelation and they decide, I've got to go look this up for myself. Right. You can't learn it from me. You yes. have to be motivated to do it. Um, and that's where I've had my most success in conversion is, you know, I hate to use the word conversion, yes. but that's actually <laughs> what it is, uh, is, is where I've gotten somebody so mad at me that they are determined to go prove me wrong. Yes. And then they discover they end up proving me right. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's not routine. It's not yes. common. But it, it does happen. And it feels good when, when they can actually do that. Uh, but it doesn't work to browbeat somebody into them. It's more like, here's, here's some information. Here's some information. Here's some information. And the person says, finally, right. oh, yeah, I, I guess that's right. For me, I sometimes teach these critical thinking classes. And so this scientific thinking, skepticism, and evolution will all end up being a part of it. And sometimes students will start asking those sorts of questions like, how do they know how old the earth is? Or how did the eye evolve? I'm not a science professor, so I will give either answers that I can give appropriately or, or what have you. But as a biology professor, you must occasionally get students who are evolution deniers. 
Yeah. You know, I've had some interesting experiences with those. For instance, several years ago, I had a student in my introductory biology course who was open about being a creationist and actually would raise questions in class about this stuff. But he was also smart and really motivated. Okay. So it was, it was a weird situation because he'd ask these really stupid questions. There are such things as stupid questions. And he would ask these really stupid questions. I have to explain to him patiently that that's incorrect. He would come to my office hours to talk to me about these sorts of things. And he was struggling with all this, and he was getting straight A's on all the exams. Right. He's smart. He's disciplined. He's, he's actually sitting down, and he knows what answer I'm expecting, so he gives that. <laughs> and he was cruising towards an A in the class, and then all of a sudden he dropped it. And he came to me, and he said that, these ideas were challenging his faith, and he could no longer continue in it. Mm. And, you know, I, I can kind of respect that, but I'm also kind of sad about it. Because right. he would have succeeded at anything he wanted to do. But religion had closed off these big areas. Basically, all of science were ex was excluded to him because of his beliefs. And so that was a tragic loss. Hmm. I, I don't want to leave creationism without at least asking you. I have been to the Creation Museum for part of my research, and I know you have as well from reading your blog. Mm -hmm. Of course, from, you know, entrance to exit, the entire place is offensive and ridiculous. But I wonder, <laughs> again, if you talk about the Creation Museum or write about it, is are there specific points that you use as examples of how inaccurate the claims are? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things I've talked about with my scientists, friends, and colleagues has been the portrayal of evolution in the museum. Okay. And I don't, I don't mean just the cartoonish, oh, it'll make you evil sort right. of portrayal, but they are compelled by the evidence to somehow fit evolution into their worldview. Right. And, and the usual strategy is to say, well, you know, there was, there were two of each kind and each kind represents a family level of taxonomy. And they then diversified after the flood, so right. in 4,000 years. And so you, you start looking at this stuff, and it's hyper-evolution. Right. It's, it's evolution at a rate that is just unimaginable <laughs> to a biologist. So it's, it's this weird thing where we're sitting there looking at this stuff, and we have to argue, well, yeah, evolution happens, but it can't happen that fast. <laughs> And, and you can't have evolution happen that rapidly, especially if you're given, you know, if your starting stock is two individuals. Right. Or, or seven in the case of the holy ones. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's just, it, this is just unrealistic and impossible. And if you sit down and try and do the math, nothing works. Right. I'm... But at the same time, they're arguing that they don't believe in evolution at all. It's, it's a very weird right. dichotomy that we are seeing. So the theme of the book I'm working on is religious satire. In your uh, book in particular, there are definitely references to the role of humor and your approach to either atheism or life. Uh, you even have, um, I'm actually holding your book in my hands to make sure I say this correctly. You even have a chapter called Laughter as a Strategy for Diminishing Religion. Yep. In that chapter, you say religion has at least two weaknesses. One is that it is empirically false. The other weakness, one we neglect at the cost of diminished effectiveness, is that religion is hilarious. So um, what do you think of the role of humor, comedy, m mocking in either like atheism, new atheism, debate, you know, yeah. what you will? Yeah, it's, it's, it's because there's a, there is a kind of trade-off here is that as a scientist, we could get really serious and give a long lecture in basic biology and evolutionary principles to an audience of 
church-going fanatics, <laughs> and it, it, it will not work. Right. They will tune you out, and also often they don't even have the background to grasp what you're talking right. about. You know, it's it's like what I just said about their rates of evolution. They don't care about the numbers. They don't have the basic math to figure this stuff out. Right. So, you know, they just accept what Pastor Ken Ham says. Uh, so, yeah, we need something to, to turn this into a little bit more of of an entertainment because people do not usually voluntarily go to long lectures in biology. Right. And when you're trying to get in touch with, you know, a general audience of possibly quite smart, possibly even well-educated people who have no background in what you're talking about, you got to have a way to draw them in. Right. So you mentioned you talk, you talked to somebody at, at TED Talks. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same thing there. TED Talks drive me nuts because they're so formulaic. But right. they are very effective at holding the attention of an audience for 20 minutes. Right. And if you can do that, <laughs> you can do lots of things. You right. can give all kinds of instruction in how the real world works in 20 minutes if they will listen to you. And so that's kind of what I, what I see as part of the role of humor and just being entertaining in general in these sorts of things. You, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were uh, attended the first Reason Rally in 2014. Yes, I spoke there even. Okay. What was that like? Uh, it was wet and rainy. <laughs> <laughs> that, it, was a, it was a different sort of experience because I forget how many thousands of people that were there, but there, were, there was a huge audience. And these people were really motivated. Yeah, so for, I was surprised to see that a contingent of students from my university had shown up. And I looked out there, and there they were, pressed up against the fences in the very front row. <laughs> so you suddenly have this, this new sense of responsibility here that you, you've got to tell them a story. So that, that was... That was fun. It was also fun meeting some of the people backstage. Such as? Uh, let's see, who did I? Oh, Tim Minchin, of course. Okay. He's he's an incredibly nice guy. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan. He Tim Minchin actually will uh, appears in my manuscript. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. So he's he, he doesn't put on airs or anything. He's right. just. It was kind of terrifying watching him go out on this this soaking wet stage draped with cables barefoot. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, one of the. Yeah. One of the reasons I bring up the Reason Rally, so that's interested when you brought up, um, you know, meeting people backstage, is that, I don't know, half the speakers were comedians or actors. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's, yeah. A, it's a data point for my study and just the idea that comedians are, or let's, you know, there are some comedians such as Tim and others who are involved in, let's just say, the skeptical community. Yes. So. Well, you know... This, this is going to sound terribly elitist of me to say, mm -hmm. but to be an atheist requires a little bit more thought and intelligence. Right. And I think to be a good comedian also requires the same skills. Right. It, it's it's like the, the constant dilemma of what are those conservative comedians <laughs> doing? Because they're not funny and they're not very bright. Right. And yet they get up on stage and they've, they've got this audience that wants to hear them. And, you know, you hear Dennis Miller or Stephen Crowder once and you just say, right. where's the humor? But uh, somebody yep. like Tim Minchin, he's got, he's obviously very intelligent. He's really into the science. It's, it's clear he's got a curious mind. And I think right. you need that to be a good comedian. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I look for in a good comedian is that it's not just, oh, I'm going to 
tickle your funny bone. It's that I'm going to make you think and I'm going to make right. you recognize, you know, maybe satirically some of the flaws in the universe. I do want to say that what another important component in the book I'm working on is religious satire after September 11th. And uh -huh. um, your coincidence or otherwise your blog also comes after September 11th, I think. Yes, it did. So is, is there any um, correlation or do you, has September 11th affected your work or perspective? In, in some ways, yes, but it's not the way that the successful exploiters of 9-11 <laughs> have worked. Um, when I heard about this catastrophe, and I actually had friends in New York who were contacting me at the time, you know, I, I did not see this as a reason to hate religion. Okay. That what I saw was desperate acts by misled men who were striking out against U.S. imperialism. Okay. And that that doesn't make for a very funny story. No. Nope. <laughs> no, especially not when you're trying to when you when you see both sides and you say, you know, yep. yes, it's true that was an unforgivable act that those those people were murderous criminals, and you know, if if there were a way to punish them worse than how they've been punished now by being dead, I would say, yes, we ought to, we ought to mm -hmm. throw the full weight of the law at them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I've, I was following various scholars of religion and people like Scott Atran, who actually know a lot about the Middle East okay. and who have lived and worked there. And they, they know what desperate poverty many of these people are. And at the same time, right the callous indifference and violence that the U.S. perpetuates on the third world. So it's, it, it just mm. kind of sucked all the funny right out of it, right? Right. Yep. At the time, but even continuing now, almost impossible for, let's say, public intellectuals to discuss this aspect of it. Oh, yeah. Yep. And even at, at the time, it was, for instance, uh, Bill Maher, mm -hmm. who is a comedian, I do not like at all. I think he's a horrible person. Okay. But Maher said the, something that was completely honest and true about this, that, you know, the, the seven men who stole mm -hmm. those planes and flew them into the buildings right. were not cowards. Right. They definitely are, were not cowards. They were mm -hmm. misguided. Mm -hmm. He got so much pressure the, on that. And yes. he ultimately backed down. And so, you know, that's that's one of the things I don't like about him is he had this this moment of right. courageous truth and he backed down. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that, that those comments were what lost him his first show, ultimately. Correct. Yeah. And he'll never make that kind of comment again. Now he'd rather suck up to the conservatives. Okay. So. <laughs> one doesn't often hear Bill Maher described that way, so I guess it uh, yeah. gave me pause. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a he's a great, you know, lampooner of uh, religion. But I will say I've also seen him on his show bring on some very anti-science commentators. And yes, uh, he's got his own anti-vax views and things like that. Yeah, no, I I kind of got turned off of him because of his movie Religulous, which I did not like at all. Oh, OK. Well, I, I need to know why. Yeah, because <laughs> that's kind of a you might um, imagine that movie is also a significant narrative of my book. <laughs> oh, OK. Well, what what really bothered me about it, for instance, that that truck stop chapel, yep, which is the first major scene of the movie as well. Yeah, where he brings in these truckers and he confronts them with all this stuff. 
And it felt so much like a dishonest setup to me. Right. Let's go out and find somebody who hasn't thought very deeply about these things. Right. And then we will confront them with the inherent contradictions of their philosophy. Boom. We will we will make fun of them and we will win. Right. And I, I kind of felt that way about Mars whole movie is that you know, I I honestly do believe that most of the people who are religious are religious but don't think much about it. Right. It's it's part of their tradition, it's part of their lives. And to suddenly fault them right. for not being philosophers is it just bugged the heck out of me. And it felt like he was dishonestly setting up people for a comedy gag. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a scene um, that probably, if you don't remember it or remember it, dovetails with exactly what you're talking, where he went to um, Bible Land and conducts an interview with an actor portraying Jesus, but then starts asking him the questions, you know, that he'd like to ask Jesus. Yeah. Right? So there's like a, yes. an inherent, like a, you know, contradiction. That actor doesn't know he's not a theologian and he's certainly not Jesus so <laughs> what kind of answers yeah. can he give <laughs> other than you know humorous or easy to mock ones maybe I should say <laughs> right yeah and you know there's a place for humor and you know you can address somebody's mm -hmm. erroneous beliefs in a humorous way but when that person becomes the target of your humor right they're not going to listen to you they're not going to pay any attention to what you're saying and and I, I just feel like Marr is particularly good at alienating the people he's mocking. Right. Which, which sounds contradictory. Yeah, you're mocking them. Of course you're mocking them. <laughs> uh, but there's there are gentle kinds of mocking that you can do mm -hmm. that don't completely turn somebody off from your message. The um, My favorite parts, or maybe the most effective parts of that film for me, is when he was doing his, I'll just say shtick, but with actual religious leaders because when he was speaking to religious leaders then it's like capturing a sense of hypocrisy or extremism yes and you know i would agree completely with that 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 those ought to be our targets that we right. ought to be going after ken ham for instance instead yes. of the people who are going to the creation museum well i often show students the scene <laughs> from the religious uh, that is features Ken Ham in the Creation Museum. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Ken yeah. Ham is totally fair game for anything you want to do. <laughs> Similarities between critical thinking skills of scientists and ideally critical thinking skills of um, either satire or humorists. I mean, are there similarities? Is there overlap? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the first most important thing is you've got to be able to see what's going on. You know, you've mm -hmm. got to be able to perceive the problems in what somebody is saying or believing. Uh, so that, uh, and I, I think having that kind of perceptivity is critical for both scientists and comedians. Mm. So that that's part of it. Then I think, you know, if, if I were to add my own bit about satire and humor, it's that you have to do it with some empathy for the listener, because ultimately that's who you're trying to reach. Right. And you use, you use satire and humor as a humanizing mm -hmm. thing. Because God knows we scientists can be so pompous and full of ourselves. <laughs> and, and we have to take ourselves a step down in order to carry out, you know, these, these kind of public lectures where we make fun of ourselves and others. And that's kind of key for me is that we don't take ourselves so seriously that we can't see what the other person is seeing. Um, sometimes comedians uh, and atheists both receive this criticism that it's preaching to the choir. Uh -huh. I mean, is that uh, legitimate? You know, Bill Maher's yeah. fans think that he's funny already, so, and he does 
religious satire, they're already on his side. Right. So is preaching to the choir a real factor? Um, and the same has been said about atheist, you know, writers as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is in a sense that, and I, I think it's something you have to be aware of that as a college professor, of course, I go into a classroom every day and I can trust that my students have been given the background in math and chemistry and all right. those sorts of things. And oh. there, that's, that's one environment where, yeah, I am definitely preaching to the choir, but mm. if I'm going to do any outreach, if I'm going to leave the classroom, and go to some an atheist conference or whatever. Right. That's no longer true. Then you have to recognize that yeah, these people have different backgrounds and different interests. Uh, you also have to worry that you know I, I've, for instance, I have given debates and lectures in churches. Okay. And one of the things that happens there is if if it's announced that you're going to be debating at such and such a church, all the local churches bus in <laughs> and you look out at this audience and this is a hostile audience okay comedians must experience this too right right <laughs> <laughs> where, where the audience is predisposed to hate you because because <laughs> for instance you're opening for the big name person that they're really here to see so you're in the way <laughs> that kind of thing happens to me all the time and there again it's it's a matter of can you find enough empathy with your audience to reach them? Right. And I've been in those situations, and usually the, the best result I have had is afterwards all the people come up to me and they say, yeah, you beat him, but that guy wasn't our best Christian. <laughs> Sir? So it's just the way things are. Yes. And, uh, but I think you have to be willing to engage that hostile audience and try to win them over. In my case, I usually try to win them over with the evidence, not so much the humor, because I'm not that good at it. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's that's uh, always what you've got to do. Well, PZ, I want to thank you again for your time sure. and uh, for being on this uh, podcast. Yeah, I'm only a little bit jet-lagged and exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was good. Lots of fun. Thank you so much. So how was that? How was that? Was that good? It was good. It was pretty good. P.Z. Myers was good. I know he was good. I hope I was good. Hey, I really enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed, you know, the, the new atheism, atheism, how it's evolved, how there's tension. You know, they, the original writers, didn't really call themselves new atheists. That was sort of a cultural, you know, almost misnomer that was foisted upon them. Became sort of useful for a while. And, you know, whenever you have diverse and critical thinkers, it's not really a movement. There's not a group. It's not a club. Uh, it's certainly not a religion. But it is people interested in critical thinking skills and in science. And that's, that's where I think some of the connection is between the so-called new atheist authors and some of these comedians that I'm interested in. I do want to add a quick personal note. When PZ was talking about his, his story about his student who was so good in his biology class but so weighed down by his concerns about his faith issues that he actually, even though he was cruising for an A, had to drop the class I, you know, that is something I've seen as well o over the years. Every once in a while, I mean, I teach critical thinking classes, as I mentioned. That's the logic, reasoning, rhetoric, as well as um, some information about science, uh, scientific method, things of that nature. And uh, every once in a while, you know, it's not every class, it's not every year, someone who's coming from a faith-based perspective will try to raise issues and I, I love that. First of all, I love students that when they speak up, you know, ask your question. 
Common questions that I've heard include, what good is half an eye? Show me a half-necked giraffe. Uh, you know, show me the missing link. How do they know? And then sort of dot, dot, dot. And, you know, as a, as a teacher, there's an element to these questions that I like. If the questions were being asked in good faith, they represent a kind of curiosity. If you're genuinely curious, these are good questions. How did giraffes get these long necks? How did eyes evolve over time? Uh, I'm not a biology professor. I'm a theater professor. So when questions of, from biology or other sciences come up that are too technical, I do not attempt to answer them, and I won't attempt to answer them now. I will say that you know these kinds of questions have been answered. That is one thing. If you are genuinely interested in the evolution of the eye, it's a very well-studied topic. Go to a library. You will find a book. You know, check into it. It is fascinating. Um, I'm a great lover of and champion of science. And um, as Peasy put it, and you're just walking out in nature and noticing things. He's studying spiders. He just goes out and looks at spiders. Let the questions come to you. Be curious about the world around you. And the thing about a scientific perspective is that these questions stimulate you. Uh, in the worst case scenario, faith-based perspective these questions are all dead ends. These questions are all, you know, where, where, how did the eye evolve? Um, well, God made it. And then that's the end of the question. You know, where do drafts get their necks from? Well, that's the way God made drafts. And that's the end of the question. Doesn't lead to discovery. Doesn't lead to awe. Doesn't lead to medicine or engineering. We, we need to be curious about the world. And I think that, you know, P.Z. Myers and his blog uh, really uh, represent that passion for scientific curiosity. Anyway, let's wrap this up. What do you say, folks? Let me just uh, uh, say a few ending comments. First of all, I want to thank PZ for being my guest today. I really appreciate him spending time with me. I want to thank my friend Jeff Geddert for providing technical advice on the producing the podcast as well as some additional written material. That beautiful Bach organ music you hear is being played by my friend Mark Bell. He is a world-famous organist who plays in organs all over the world. Um, and you can look up more of his music online, so please do if you like organ music. Um, I want to thank you, the audience, if you listened all the way to the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for your interest in what we're doing. We are on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean. Please follow us, uh, leave, leave ratings, leave comments, uh, share us with your friends. You know, we're trying to slowly build something here, so we really appreciate your support. It's a free podcast. There's nothing ever to pay for. Uh, we just uh, I'm just trying to share these interviews and my research. And uh, so thank you. Thank you. So uh, that leaves it for me, your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, to thank you, the listener of this podcast, for coming along for the ride. I'll see you next time. Thank you. Well, we can edit this part to make you look smarter. Oh, oh. <laughs> how much work are you going to put into editing? Good grief. <laughs>